You know, this is a good segue. We're going to be talking about the armor of God for the next few weeks. We've been in Ephesians since the beginning of the summer, and we're finally getting into Ephesians chapter 6. And um, we're going to be talking about the belt of truth today. We'll be going through the different articles of the armor one by one. And today is about all about the belt of truth. So turn with me to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians 6, verse 10 through 18. We're going to read the whole section together. Ephesians 6, it's going to be on the screen as well. It says this, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Come on, some of us need to be reminded of that today, that we don't wrestle against people. What do we wrestle against? We wrestle against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may may be able to withstand in the evil day And having done all to stand firm, stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace, in all circumstances take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit, With all prayer and supplication, to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. That's what we did this morning. See, what Paul mentions in this verse, these aren't just random articles of armor that he's thrown out. He's giving imagery of Roman armor, but it actually comes from Isaiah chapter 59. The prophet Isaiah in chapter 59 describes the armor of the Messiah, It is God's armor. It is the armor worn by the rescuer, the the strong God of Israel. It says this uh, in Isaiah 59, 16 through 17. uh, Israel is being overtaken by the wicked, and God comes to their rescue wearing the armor that's mentioned in Ephesians 6. And so Isaiah 59, verse 16, it says, And he saw that there was no one and was amazed that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought salvation to him, and his righteousness upheld him, and he put on the righteousness like a breastplate, and a helmet of salvation on his head, and he put on garments of vengeance for clothing, and wrapped himself with zeal and cloak. Here's the point. This is the armor that Jesus himself wore. This is his armor. This is the armor of our Lord Jesus, the armor of God. And it is God's armor that's been given to us to wear in battle. And you cannot rely on your own armor when the day of evil comes. You can't rely on on what's comfortable for you or your safety, the things that you go to when the day of evil comes. You cannot rely on your own armor. but, but, But Paul tells us in Ephesians 6 that we have to put on God's armor. That we have to equip ourselves with what Jesus himself equipped himself with. Because how many of you know that if Jesus needed to put on the armor of God, he went into the wilderness and was tested by the devil for 40 days. He was tested. He was tempted in the wilderness. If Jesus wore the armor of God, how much more do we need to equip ourselves with the armor of God? 
You remember what David said when he put on Saul's armor before fighting Goliath. He looked at Saul. Saul's concerned about David, and he says, hey, before you go out to tackle the giant, I'm got, you put on my armor. Stick on the stuff that I wear, and he equipped David with this armor that didn't fit. He wasn't used to it. And David looked at Saul, and he said, I cannot go in these. I'm not used to them. What was David used to? David was used to wearing God's armor, an armor that cannot be seen with your eyes, but it's more effective and suitable than anything else. I want to ask you, what armor do you equip yourself with? What armor do you wear? What are you used to? Are you finding security in what you do for God? Come on, a lot of us who grew up in the church still believe this lie, that the more that I do for God and the better I am at being a, at being a Christian, a Christian, the better I am at being a Christian, that that I have more favor with God, that he likes me a little bit more, he loves me a little bit more. And so that's the armor that we sometimes put on, is that I need to do things for God in order to stay protected. And the minute that we see ourselves slipping off that path, we start to wonder, is God even on my side anymore? Does he really care about me? Because we're so used to wearing an armor that is based on our works. And that's not how, that's not how it works, according to Jesus. Do you find comfort knowing that people think highly of you? That I've put on this image, and as long as nobody knows the struggles that are really going on inside, I'll be safe. So I can come to church with a big smile. I can come to church with a good face, and people will think I'm a really good Christian, and I won't have any problems. A lot of us put on that armor as well. But it's an armor that we're not supposed to wear. It's an armor that we're not comfortable in, an armor that we're not used to. Out of all these articles of armor mentioned, the belt of truth seems the least likely to make the checklist before heading out to war. Imagine a soldier, you got your shield, you got your sword. Oh man, I forgot my belt. Bummer. You know, it seems the least like I didn't even wear a belt today. That's how, le- that's how, that's how little I think of a belt. Yet, it's the first thing that Paul mentions to the Ephesians. Why? Is a belt even a piece of armor? What does it do? It's just a thin piece of leather. It's hardly substantial to a breastplate or a shield. And you may not realize it, but the modern church has depicted truth as something delicate like a belt and in need of defense. Christianity, right, we we stake everything on the gospel being true so we do our best to defend the truth and preserve it and we practice apologetics and outline the logic of our belief we brace ourselves for an attack of false teaching worried that sound doctrine will be lost forever that we have to protect truth we have to guard truth it's fragile it's delicate if anybody comes in and starts teaching false doctrine the whole thing's going to fall apart so we can't let them in we can't let them open up their mouths and sometimes we treat truth like it's delicate it's fragile it's something that can crack and break it's not that strong now there's no doubt that Christians are to remain vigilant to false teaching but Paul included the truth as part of God's armor, so make no mistakes. We, we do not need to defend truth. Truth defends us. Let me say that again. You do not need to defend God's word. You don't need to defend God's truth. 
the truth of God will defend you. It is a piece of armor that we put on, that we equip ourselves in. It's not our job to protect God. Zeal to defend his truth often exposes a lack of faith that he's Lord and he can take care of himself. God is God. He doesn't need us to defend him. His word is true. It's sharper than a double-edged sword. It cuts through bone and marrow. It cuts through anything. God's word is strong. Now think of the functions of a belt. What does a belt do? Now if you are, I, I remember my sister visiting my step-grandpa's house, my grandpa's house, and, and you know, he had that plumber thing going on. He'd bend over and my sister would see it and she'd go, Grandpa, you need a belt. And from that day, I never saw my grandpa without some suspenders. He went a step further. He didn't just wear a belt. He made sure he had the suspenders on. But think about the functions of a belt. A belt shapes. It defines. It gathers in. Yeah. A belt holds everything together. But get this. A belt also sets our outer limits and encircles us. It surrounds us. And my prayer today is not only would we be able to better understand the importance of God's truth, but we'd be able to equip it and allow it to guard our minds because it wants to defend you. It is a defender. I took the kids, uh, my wife and I took the kids to Pioneer Day at the, uh, the Grant County Museum uh, a, a few months ago. And we stopped into, uh, they have, anybody been to the Grant County Museum yet? I've been there a couple times. It's actually pretty cool. And we stopped into their schoolroom. And in the schoolroom that they have set up, they just have a wall lined with encyclopedias. Lined and lined with just encyclopedias all over the place. And I just stopped as I was looking at this wall of encyclopedias. And I thought, how crazy is it that we have an infinite amount of knowledge that can be accessed with a device in our pocket. Now, all of those encyclopedias, the, the library of the earth can be found on a device that is in our pockets. We live in an age of infinite information. What do you say when you're not sure of something or don't, or don't believe somebody? Google it. Hey, do you know how, how many cups are in a gallon? Google it. <laughs> Some teachers in the room are like, come on, Pastor Blake, it's not that hard. <laughs> you know where we got the word Google? Google was a misspelling of the word Google, which is a number. It's the number one with a hundred zeros behind it. It's a big number. It's a Google. You got a zillion, a trillion, this is a Google. It's a lot. It's a massive amount. And the, the, the implication is that, you know, Google, the internet, we have an infinite amount of informa information. It's just a massive amount of knowledge. And with so much information at our, disposable, at our disposal, why don't we all agree on what is true in our world? Because even though the information is endless, much of the information is untrue. It's false, or it's misinformation, or it was planted there by somebody who's trying to get attention or somebody who's trying to lead you astray. We have so much information of the world, but none of us can agree on what is truth because there's so much untruth out there. I want to play a little game of true or false with you. Is that okay? Okay, I want you to raise your hand. I'm going to say true. I'm going to, I'm going to ask a question, and you've got to tell me if this is true or false. And don't Google it, Okay. <laughs> 
Australia is wider than the moon. If you believe it's true, raise your hand. Australia is wider than the moon. If you think it's true, raise your hand. If you think it's false, raise your hand. If you're not plain, raise your hand. Okay. It's true. Australia is wider than our Earth's moon. Google it. Okay, now don't. Here's another one for you. The Eiffel Tower gets taller in the summer. If you think it's true, raise your hand. If you think it's false, raise your hand. It's true. Thermal expansion causes the Eiffel Tower to grow 15 centimeters, 6 inches in the summer. It gets 6 inches taller in the summer. Crazy. Here's another one for you. It takes 7 years for your body to digest a piece of gum. Raise your hand if you think it's true. If you think it's false, raise your hand. It's false. It's not true. I've been told this my whole life. Don't swallow your gum. It's going to take seven years to get it out. And so I've been afraid of swallowing my gum. Here's another one for you. Supermarket apples can be a year old. Raise your hand if you think it's true. Raise your hand if you think it's false. It's true. Supermarket apples can be a year old. You, uh, what people do is they cover them in wax, they hot air dry them, and they put them in cold storage. They can be good for 6 to 12 months. So you might be thinking you're eating a fresh apple. It could be almost a year old. Isn't that crazy? I don't trust the world anymore. Okay, last one. Here it is. On average, you sw- uh, on average uh, the average human swallows eight spiders throughout their lifetime in their sleep. True, raise your hand if you think it's true. False, if you think it's false, raise your hand. It's false. A spider, apparently, I've been told, somebody, somebody told me, somebody told me one time that the, an average human small, swallows eight spiders throughout their lifetime, and it freaked me out. But the reality is that a spider, uh, they, they feel the vibrations from your mouth. You're sleeping with your mouth open. They feel the heat and the vibrations, and they won't go in your mouth because they think it's, it's dangerous. So don't worry. You don't swallow spiders in your sleep. Thank God. All right, bring it back in. Everybody's like, oh, that was freaky. Now, if you're wondering where I got all this information, then you're just proving my point. Okay. With so many lies in the world, how can we distinguish what's true? How do we know what's true? These are just silly examples that I'm giving you right now. But, but what about the truth about what God says a healthy marriage is? Is a marriage supposed to be between one man and one woman? Or can that, that can be expanded? And, and where do we get that? And how do we know that that can be trusted? How do we know that that's just not ancient fact? What is the truth about life after death? What is the truth about what sin is and what isn't? Because if you ask somebody who believes the word of God, they're going to think very differently from the rest of the world. Because the world would say that I can decide for myself what truth is and what isn't. Truth is relative. And so good for you if you believe that. But don't push that onto me because what I'm doing is working for me. And our world lives like this. What is the truth about Jesus' resurrection from the grave. Did he really rise from the grave? Now, I know that if you're here this morning, you probably know and you probably believe that it is true that he rose from the grave. But we are filled, we are in a world where people question the authenticity of the resurrection. They wonder, did Jesus really rise from the grave? 
Or is it just superstitious nonsense that makes people feel better about death? These are all important questions that must be asked, and I don't claim to know all the answers. But I believe that the Bible is trustworthy and true for reasons that are both experiential, that I have had encounters with God's Word and encounters with the Spirit of God while reading the Word of God. And I also trust the Bible because of the historical evidence and textual criticism that I've learned as I've studied the Word of God, that it stands on its own two feet. It doesn't need a defender. And if you want more information about those facts, you can email me because I've, I've, I know that I've written messages about this. And so I can send you my, I'll send you the outlines if you want. But the Bible tells us that the reason we have so much misinformation, so much, so much lies in the world is because we have an adversary. Satan, did you know the, the word Satan in the Hebrew, it's not a name. It actually just is translated the adversary. It's translated the Satan. And so Satan's not his name, it's just his title. He is the adversary. And the Bible says that the adversary is the father of lies. He's a liar above all else. In John 8, 44, it says, Jesus says this to these Pharisees. He says, he, the devil, was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar, and he is the father of lies. It is in his character, in his nature. Just like God's nature is truth, the enemy's nature is lies. That's all he does, is he lies. And we also read in Genesis that his first act was to tell Eve a lie. The first thing he did. And it wasn't a blatant, obvious lie. It wasn't something that they could just catch and go, oh, that's not true. It wasn't blatant. It wasn't obvious, but it was a subtle lie mixed with some facts. What did he say? Did God say you could eat? You couldn't eat from the, the tree? And he said, yeah, he said we would surely die. And the devil looks at Eve and he says, you won't die, which was physically true. After she took a bite of the apple, she didn't physically die, but she spiritually died. And then he tells her, your eyes will be opened, which was true. That the minute that Adam and Eve were to eat of the apple, their eyes were to be opened to the knowledge of good and evil. And then he says, your eyes will be opened and you will become like God. But that was already the, the truth. Adam and Eve were created in the image of God. That when Jesus created mankind, they, they, he, he put his image in them. He made them in his likeness. They were already like God. But the devil said, you're missing something. If you eat of this fruit, you will become like God. Not knowing that God had already made them exactly like him. See, the adversary's goal was to plant seeds of doubt so they would not trust in God's truth. He wants us, this is what he does today, as he puts seeds of doubt in our minds, and when circumstances come up, he puts thoughts in our head like, this is God's fault, or you're just a sinner, and this is the punishment that you're reaping for, for, for your sin, or, or you, you name it. He comes in our weakest moments, and he starts inserting these seeds in our mind, and oftentimes the, the things that he tells us, it sounds a lot like our own thoughts. 
and we think this is just me, but it's actually the devil. Truth and fact are not the same thing. Truth is about determining the meaning of something. Now, stay with me here. Truth is about determining the meaning of something, and we use facts in a courtroom to determine the truth about what happened, don't we? What was the motive or the purpose behind someone's actions? And discovering the truth, we're trying to figure out the meaning of something, the purpose, the intent, the motive of someone's actions. And no one can perfectly determine meaning or motives of the heart except for God because he's the only being who's not been corrupted by sin. He is the only one who can truly determine the motives and the meanings of our heart. Here's the reality. If you're taking notes, write this phrase down. God wasn't keeping Adam and Eve from truth. Oftentimes we think, God, why would you do that to Adam and Eve? You put a tree of knowledge and good, a knowledge of good and evil. Why wouldn't you want your people to have a knowledge of good and evil? You, you put this in the middle of the garden, but that you tell them not to eat from it. That's kind of cruel. Don't you think, God? Are you trying to keep something from them? No, God wasn't keeping Adam and Eve from truth. God is truth and didn't want Adam and Eve to determine truth apart from relationship with him. He knew that the minute that they ate of the fruit, suddenly they would think that they know what's best. The minute you eat from this tree, you're going to start determining for yourself what's right and wrong. But you can't do that because you're a creation. Only the creator God knows the, the motives and the intent of our heart. And so God wasn't keeping truth from Adam and Eve. He was, he was saying, I am all you need. I am the truth, the way, the truth, and the life. You don't need anything else. And if you eat of that tree, you're going to be trying to figure out what the truth is apart from relationship with me. And I don't want that for your life. But the first humans wanted to, de- to determine right and wrong for themselves truth and lies for themselves and as a result the world humanity is divided over how we define right and wrong truth and lies good and evil because we see the world not through god's eyes but we see it through our own and so our we're we're divided in our marriages that better be god calling (laughs) we're divided in our marriages we're divided by political parties because these you know, husbands and wives, they think they, they, they think they know what's best, what's right and wrong, what's the truth and what's the lie. Political parties, they believe, each side believes they know what's right and wrong, what's truth and what's lies. There's national conflict. Each nation thinks, I know what's best for our nation. I know what humanity needs. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to force my, uh, I'm going to be aggressive and force violence on this country and force them to subject to me. And we all have been ripped apart Due to Adam and Eve's decision to determine right and wrong, truth and lies for themselves. When God in the very beginning said, I am truth and I am all you need. It's all a battle in our mind. See, in our our cozy American churches, we often describe following Jesus as a spiritual journey. (laughs) Don't we? You are on 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 a discovery of God. (laughs) Okay, you're tracking with me. A spiritual journey. But the Apostle Paul described it as a war for your soul. And we have an enemy. You have an adversary. You are in a war that you cannot see. You have enemies that are trying to take your life that you cannot see. 
And may I propose this morning that the battle is over your mind. The battle is taking place in your mind. And the tension between figuring out what the truth is, what God says, and what the enemy is saying, what the lies are. Spiritual warfare is a battle for truth taking place in your mind. Listen to these instructions from the Bible that are all about our minds. 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5. It says, for though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. See, Paul says in Corinthians that the war is waging in your mind. And we take our thoughts captive they're not physical weapons. It's happening in the mind. Romans 12, 2, it says, Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. 1 Peter 1, 13, Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you in Jesus Christ is revealed that is coming. Colossians 3, 2, Set your minds on things above not on earthly things. Last one, Philippians 4, 8. And these are just a few examples of many scriptures in the Bible. But it says, Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. In the midst of planting lies among us, the adversary desires to make us believe one, or, one of two things. See, that the enemy comes and he places lies in our thoughts and in our minds. And he's done, he does this throughout the world. And he, he uses, his, he uses his, his, his demons to, to partner with him in spreading lies throughout the world. But this is one of two things. He wants you to believe one or two things. Either, either he wants to make you believe that he's not actually real. That he's not there. That hell isn't real. The devil's not real, and most people imagine a horned and hoofed red devil with a pitchfork, and we think to ourselves, this such is, it's such a ridiculous Halloween fantasy. How can that be real? And so the devil is really good at, at planting thoughts and doctrine and, and different uh, streams of thought in the, in the lives of people to where we have so many, so much of humanity does not believe in the existence of the devil. So he either wants to make you think that he isn't real, or number two, he wants you to believe that he's just as powerful as God. And oftentimes when we think of the last, when we think of the last days, when we think of Jesus' return, some of you have seen images of Satan and Jesus having a divine wrestling match. And they're kind of going back and forth, right? It's this final wrestling match at the end of time, and it's, it's going to be a close win for God. He's going to eke it out. And so the devil wants to make you believe that he has just as much power as God. But it's a lie. He doesn't. It's not even close. And it would be a mistake to both underestimate and overestimate the power of the adversary. It would be a mistake to underestimate him and think he doesn't have any power and that he can't do anything. That would be a mistake because... He does have power, but it would be a mistake to overestimate him and think that he has power that's equal to God. So here's, 
Here's what I want us to write down and take away today. The only power that Satan has is the extent that humanity believes his lies. The only power that our adversary has is to the extent that we believe his lies. Think of the conflict that's happening around our world. Think of Hamas. Think of the people that are, 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 are the, the bringers of violence in our world. It began once with a, with a lie. It began with a lie and it has grown from there into more and more lies. And so the only real power that the enemy has is, is, is to the extent which we believe his lies. So how can we determine what is truth? How do we determine, how do we equip the belt of truth in our lives? We need the spirit to determine what is true. I love what Jesus told the Samaritan woman at the well in John chapter 4. And he tells her that in order to become the kind of worshiper God is looking for, we need both spirit and truth. Spirit and truth. John 4.23 says this. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. What is Jesus talking about, spirit and truth? Spirit and truth are both necessary components to winning the battle in our minds. Another way to say this is we fight with both relationships and reality. Spirit, relationships, and truth, reality. Let me give you an example. Spirit or relationship without truth has no meaning. Here's an example. Imagine that you're hurting after a painful experience. Maybe you received a a really brutal diagnosis or you had a, a loved one die or You've gone through a horrible divorce, and it's causing you to doubt God, causing you to doubt his existence, maybe his love for you. And a friend comes to visit, but that friend never says a word. They just sit next to you quietly. Now, you may really appreciate your friend's love for you, but it probably wouldn't be very transformative or offer you any truth or meaning to help you adjust your mindset and to find healing. It's a good gesture, you appreciate your friend, but there's, there's nothing that has changed on the other side. Your thoughts haven't changed. It's spirit without truth. Now, flip it around. Truth without relationship is cold and cruel. Wikipedia might be full of facts, but it's never transformed a soul. Truth without spirit is like the street preacher. The, the street preacher, <laughs> preacher. It's like the street preacher, the guy on the corner of the street holding out the signs who has a bullhorn and he's, he's preaching the truth without any relational equity. This kind of preaching without any relationship has never transformed a person. At least that I know of. Maybe you have a story to tell me. But it's truth without relationship. Truth without spirit. And this is why Jesus came as both a human and a teacher. He came as a human to offer spirit. Or relational presence. He was with us in our pain. In our human condition. He knows exactly what we're going through. He knows what it's like to be exhausted. To be vulnerable. To suffer. To be tempted. Jesus came as a human to offer spirit. Relationship to us. But he also came as a teacher. As a rabbi. To offer truth. And point us to the reality of God's kingdom. And he gave meaning to. To our suffering. He gave meaning 
to the human condition. Jesus came with both spirit and truth, both relationship and reality. And he said this in John 14, 6. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. See, the belt that we wear in the armor of God, it comes first because trusting that God is true to his word is essential for equipping the rest of the armor. Do you understand that you need to trust that God is true to his word in order to believe that you have salvation, to believe that you have righteousness, to believe that you have access to peace? If you want those things, you need to trust that God's word is true. Amen? It is essential. It is the foundation for equipping the rest of the armor. And what would often happen if you were a Roman soldier, if you're putting on the armor, the belt was used to hold everything together. They wore long tunics. And so a soldier would have a hard time running into battle. And so they would fold up or they would bring up their tunic and they would tuck it into their belt. And they would, it would keep everything together for them. And without your belt, you'd be tripping over everything. Nothing, everything would be clanging around. See, the belt had held everything in place. It encircled them. It surrounded them. It was foundational. Here's my question to you this morning is, do you believe what God says is true? You might say amen, but when it comes down to it, and you look and you've got a negative number in your bank account, do you believe that God's your provider? Hmm. When you're sick, do you believe God's your healer? When you're living in shame because of your sin, do you believe God is a forgiver? And do you believe he still loves you? I wrestle with that one. Because when I get caught in shame, that is a lie that the enemy throws at me. He doesn't love you as much anymore. You messed up again. I want to leave you with 10 promises of God. And I hope that they encourage you. And I hope that you can live out these promises of God and remember them. That they would encircle you. They would surround you. They would hold everything together. Are you ready for these 10 promises? There's so many more in scripture, but I'm just going to give you 10. Number one, God promises to strengthen you. If you're weak, if you're hurting, he promises to strengthen you. Ephesians 3.14 says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. He promises that he will strengthen you in your time of need. Number two, God promises to give you rest. Are you tired and anxious? Matthew eleven twenty eight, one of my favorite verses. Jesus said, come to me, all of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you because I am humble and gentle at heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy to bear. And the burden I give you is light. What do we do oftentimes when we get stressed out? When we can't find rest, we often work harder, don't we? 
I got myself into this mess. Now I got to get myself out of this mess. I'm going to get another job. I'm going to do, I'm going to do what it takes. I'm going to, I'm not saying getting another job is a bad thing, but we oftentimes put it on ourselves and we just say, God, I'll get to you when I have time. I've got a lot going on right now. And when I have a little bit more margin in my life, I'll come to you. But right now I need you to just be quiet because I'm busy. And Jesus says, what are you doing? Come to me. If you're weary, if you have a heavy load, come to me and I will give you rest. I'll give you a light load. The third thing, God promises to take care of all your needs. Now, it doesn't say, we've got an emergency in the room. It doesn't say that God promises to take care of all your wants, does it? But he does say he will take care of all your needs. It says in Philippians 4.19, And this same God who takes care of me will supply all of your needs from his glorious riches which have been given to us in Christ Jesus. Number four, God promises to answer your prayers. Hold on a second. What's this say? Matthew 7.7, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. Does that mean God's going to answer my prayer in the exact way that I expect him to answer my prayer? No. But we have to remember that when we pray, God does promise to answer us. That he does promise to hear us. How many times have you lifted up a prayer to God wondering, are you even listening to me? Do you know what, do you, give me, can you give me a sign? It's maybe nighttime, I've done this before. Show me a shooting star right now, God. I'm looking up to the sky. Let me know you're there. God, I need, I need a sign. He's, he says, read the word of God. This is your sign. Here's your sign. Read the word of God. Because he says, I promise I'm going to answer your prayer. I promise that I hear you. Number five, God promises to work everything out for your good. Romans 8, 28. And we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. God promises to work out everything for your good. It may not feel good. It may not feel good in the moment, but it is for your good. I'm going to invite Kieran to come up as we go through these last points. Somebody's happy in the back. Number six, God promises to be with you. God promises to be with you. In Joshua 1.5, it says, I will not fail you or abandon you. This is my command. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. He promises to be with you. How many times have we felt alone? Like he's not there with us. He promises he's with us. Number seven, God promises to protect you. Psalm 91 says, This I declare about the Lord. He alone is my refuge, my place of safety. He is my God, and I trust in Him. God may be calling you out of your comfort zone. He may be calling you to step into something that you're not used to or you're unfamiliar with, but He wants you to know that He is with you and He is protecting you. He is your refuge and your hiding place. Number eight, just got three more. Number eight, God promises freedom from sin. He promises freedom from sin. John 8, 36, it says, excuse me, this is 1 John 1, 9. But if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins 
and to cleanse us from all wickedness. And John 8, 36 says, so if the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. Number nine, God promises that nothing can separate us from him. Nothing can separate us from him. Romans 8, 38, for I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels or rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God, from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Not your sin, not someone else, not an attack of the enemy, not sickness, not geography, nothing can separate you from the love of God. You are His. You belong to Him. Come on, I think somebody, some of us need to put on that belt this morning. Put on that truth this morning. That God loves me no matter what. That nothing can separate me from him. You may have walked away. You may have done your own thing for a while. But nothing can separate you from the love of God. And the last thing is God promises everlasting life. I'm so thankful for this. John three sixteen. For God so loved the world. That he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but they will have eternal life. That we have a hope, not just for the present, but we have a hope for the future as well. That our hope does not, does not rest on anything that we can see here on earth, but our hope is on what is to come and what he has prepared for us. And when we walk in those truths, when we walk in those promises, and there are many more promises in Scripture, but when we walk in the promises of God and the truth of God, when the enemy comes like he did to Jesus in the wilderness, and he says, God's ashamed of you. He's disappointed with you. He doesn't love you anymore. We can put on the belt and say, that is not true. I know what the Scripture says. I know what the truth is. That is a lie. When the enemy comes and says, God doesn't want to heal you. He doesn't want your well-being. He wants you to stay sick because he's teaching you a lesson. We can say, hold on a second. The word of God says that he desires my healing. He desires my wholeness. That he is a God that is for me, not against me. We can walk in the truth of God. Would you stand with me as we close? I'm going to invite the ministry team to come forward. Would you just maybe find a spot on the sides here? Those on the ministry team, make your way up to the front. And I'm going to offer the altar up to anybody who needs prayer. Maybe you've been wrestling with some lies, or maybe uh, you've been struggling with, uh, maybe, maybe you've been doubting God, doubting his goodness, doubting his love for you, doubting his power in your life. And I just want to invite you to come to the front as Kieran continues to pray. We're going we're gonna to close right now, and I'm going to dismiss everybody to the cafe. We'll pray over the food. But if you need prayer, please stay in the room. We're not going to run out of food. It'll be there when you get done. So let's, let's pray and invite the Holy Spirit to, to move and work in our hearts. God, we thank you that you've given us your armor, that it is the same armor that Jesus wore and it is perfectly suited for everything I need. I thank you, God, that your word doesn't need a defender, that it defends me. It defends the church. It defends us. It defends your people. And God, we, we thank you that we have such amazing and valuable tools to continue your work on the earth, to bring your kingdom to earth. Father, we love you, and we thank you for this time.
I pray for our time of fellowship as we move into the cafe. Would you bless the food? And God, I pray for every heart in this room who needs to hear a word from you, God. Would you speak to their hearts this morning? Give them courage to come and ask. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. We love you, church. Let's go enjoy some time together in the cafe.